Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, April 15. I'm Tom Tilley and today on The Briefing, the young Jewish women who fought back against Hitler. Jewish women who were blowing up Nazi trains to being ghetto fighters and flinging Molotov cocktails and throwing explosives at Nazi tanks. That's the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor and her book is currently being made into a Steven Spielberg movie. We'll speak to her in just a moment on The Briefing. First, Jan Fran is here as we hit the big news of today. Hello, Tom, and some advice from Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's the US medical advisor that is uh, famous for... I guess calling out Donald Trump's mistruths, he's given Australia a warning about COVID. As long as there's the dynamic of virus replication somewhere, there will always be the threat of the emergence of variants, which could then come back. Yeah, I really don't like the term virus replication or emergence of (laughs) variants. Um, That was Dr Fauci. He was speaking as part of a remote lecture last night at the University of New South Wales. Um, He's been the public health advisor to every US president since Ronald Reagan. And just a quick update on how the US is doing vaccine-wise. The country's vaccinated more than 192 million people. They've received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, so that's roughly a third of the US population and 75.3 million people are fully vaccinated. So Dr. Fauci is doing something right over there. So he praised what we've done here in suppressing the virus, but he said there'll be no end to the threat until most of the rest of the world is vaccinated. When you ultimately get it controlled, if you want to maintain the control, you want to have control throughout the entire world. So his comments basically come a day after uh, the federal government saying that it would be open to setting up mass vaccination centres in Australia later this year, similar, I guess, to what they have in the United States where they've been able to vaccinate that many people. Yeah, that's been an interesting one to watch. Um, That suggestion of doing it here came from the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian. It was Mm. initially pushed back on by the federal government, but now... (laughs) They like the idea and they're bringing the premiers back into the tent. They're having these um, twice-a-week meetings now. Um, Just a slight correction from yesterday, we said once every two weeks. There was a lot of confusion in a number of media outlets, but they're going to meet twice a week. So this is the the war footing um, that Scott Morrison's talking about. And as Scott Morrison, we'll we'll meet them on the beaches, we'll meet them on the phone hookups. That's his idea of war footing. Anthony Albanese, they're landing, landing a sweet burn on the Prime Minister. And speaking of the Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison says that he will not apologise to the former head of Australia Post, Christine Holgate. I don't think that's, there's, a, there's a need for that. Yeah, this is as close as he got, though. It was not my intention to cause distress to Christine Holgate, and I regret any distress that that uh, strong language uh, may have caused to her, and indeed did cause to her. Yeah. Not, not a great apology. Not an apology no, at all. No, not an apology at all, exactly. Hard to Hard to see how that regret is really sincere and that he he didn't mean to cause any harm to her. He fired her on the spot. Yeah, and he he was under some pressure to apologise because of her very searing evidence um, in Tuesday's Senate committee where she basically said that she had been bullied out of her job as CEO of OzPost. If he was to call me and apologise, I would welcome that apology. 
Yeah, well, it's um, looking unlikely to happen. The government's also trying to shut down any legal claim by Ms Holgate over the saga, saying that she resigned of her own volition. Um, Here is the minister in charge of AusPost, Paul Fletcher. What is very clear here is Ms Holgate has resigned uh, and she issued a public statement saying that she'd resigned. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if she does tank legal action and how much they have to pay her in settling this contract. That's still going on and all of that will determine how much more pain this causes for the Prime Minister. I do wonder if deep down he he really does regret going so hard on this. Who knows what Scott Morrison thinks deep down? I'd love to ask him. Get Grimshaw on the case. It's caused him a lot of problems. You know, mm. he, he launched that scathing attack on that day and it's just coming back to bite him and now it's playing into this narrative that he doesn't treat women the same way he treats men and that's a real political problem for him. To the United States now and the former police officer accused of the latest police shooting in the US city of Minneapolis has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. The former officer's name is Kim Potter and she was charged over the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright on Sunday. And since that uh, shooting, that that death, there's been nightly protests in the suburb of Brooklyn Centre in Minneapolis And there's also protests happening in the same city about the trial of Derek Chauvin, which continues not far away. Yeah. Um, He is, of course, the former police officer accused of killing George Floyd, um, whose death sparked the global protests last year. Now, Mr Wright's family yesterday actually met with Mr Floyd's family and they said that it was pretty traumatising to see each other and, you know, have to go through those similar experiences. Yeah, interesting to see the reaction from the police force there. Um, The officer involved resigned, so did the local police chief. So um, quite decisive action from the police compared to other cases over the years. So clearly they're wanting to send a message that the force is taking this very seriously. Yeah, and on tomorrow's briefing, actually, we're going to cross to a New York Times reporter in Minneapolis um, to find out how big the reaction is on the streets and also what the defence is arguing in the Derek Chauvin trial. And the Queen returned to work overnight after her period of mourning. Uh, The monarch hosted a ceremony at Windsor Castle for William Peel. Um, He retired after serving 14 years as Lord Chamberlain, which is the most senior aide in the royal household. Can we just acknowledge that the Queen is 94 years old Mm. and her husband just died? Mm. So her getting out of bed is a triumph Mm. at this point. Congratulations, Queen. It's the first event that she's attended since the death of her husband, Prince Philip. He died, of course, last Friday, aged 99. Yeah, and so William Peel has been charged with overseeing the arrangements for Prince Philip's funeral, the Operation Fourth Bridge, it was known as, which was the plan to, to make this happen in the way that the Prince wanted. Why do you have to give it that name? Why can't you just call it a funeral? Because it was done secretly while he was still alive. Oh, fair enough. There you go, the things you find out about the royals. Sadly, though, a maximum of 30 people will be allowed to attend the funeral, of course, because of COVID in Britain. Um, Boris Johnson has given up his seat. Mm. He won't be going. Reports out of the UK overnight, though, suggest that the Queen will sit alone again in accordance with pandemic restrictions. It must suck, man. It's going to be a really sad moment to see the Queen go through that, but um, hopefully it's a beautiful moment, you know, to remember the life of her husband. And China has challenged Japan's Deputy Prime Minister to drink water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant after he said that it was uh, apparently safe to do so. Yeah, so this is the nuclear plant that was damaged in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. And Japan announced this week that it was preparing to release a million tonnes of treated and diluted wastewater from the plant's crippled reactors into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, so right now there are 
a million tonnes of processed water that are currently being held in these 1,000 tanks at the site. But these tanks are apparently going to be full by the second half of 2022, so they have to go somewhere, and that somewhere is apparently the ocean. Do you reckon they'll do it in time for the Olympics? <laughs> yeah, you'd hate to be a swimmer in Japan at that time, wouldn't you? Um, the Deputy PM Taro Aso yesterday, though, dismissed concerns over the release of the water. I heard it's OK to actually drink the water. As for releasing it, I think we could have done it earlier. Yeah, which is... Why a spokesman for China's foreign ministry responded by, well, if it's safe to drink the water, then maybe you should take the first sip, which he has not yet, because that's very questionable water. It was one of the worst nuclear incidents ever in 2011. Um, I think anyone within a 20-kilometre radius of Fukushima had to be evacuated. Yeah, I wonder how far it is from the site where they hold the surfing for the first time in the Olympics. <laughs> we should ask Owen Wright, the Aussie surfer, how he feels about the, the water out of Fukushima. You're like, all right, it's big nuclear disaster. I want to know how this will impact the surfers. And uh, you might remember Bernie Madoff. Um, he was the man that was serving 150 years in a US prison for ripping off his clients the tune of 64.8 billion US dollars. Um, he has died in prison in the United States. He died of natural causes in prison, um, but there are thousands of people still alive who um, basically had their lives destroyed financially by his actions. All right, Jan, we'll catch you tomorrow. Um, Anika Smethurst is jumping back in the briefing studio as we bring you this amazing interview with the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. Hey, Annika here. Now, over the last two months, there's been a number of sexual abuse and harassment scandals that have forced a rethink about the way women are treated in our society. And right in the middle of that lands this amazing book that tells the incredible story of young Jewish women in Poland who fought back when the Nazis invaded. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. The stories of the young Jewish women who resisted that attack are so powerful that Steven Spielberg has already taken out an option on turning this book into a movie. It's called The Light of Days and it's written by Judy Battalion, who's a granddaughter of Polish Holocaust survivors. Judy, thank you so much for joining us there from New York. Uh, why are these stories so important to you personally? First of all, they're stories of tremendous courage and bravery against all odds. And I think it's so important to share that these women fought for freedom and for liberty, risking their lives time and time again. And these stories have been silenced for, for so long, for so many decades, that I, I, I'm just so eager to, to share them. You grew up in a Jewish community in Canada that was traumatised by the Holocaust. How did you feel when you first found out about these resistance fighters? I was stunned. I, I was shocked. I found out about them completely by accident. I was doing some research um, at the British Library on an unrelated subject and, and happened to come across an unusual book that was a, an old sort of fabric-bound, gold-plated um, artifact. And it was also in Yiddish. It was called Freuen in the Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. Um, but even more unusual than the book is the fact that I happened to speak Yiddish. So I, I started reading 
through this, this book and was stunned to find these stories about young Jewish women who defied the Nazis. It, it was not a narrative of the Holocaust that I'd ever heard. And why do you think that is? Why do you think it's less well-known than, say, other resistance movements like the French resistance? I thought a lot about this question. In fact, this almost became a a sub-question of all my research. On the one hand, what is the story? And on the other hand, what happened to the story? And I've come up with several reasons why this story was really repressed for a long time. Some of them are political Some of them have to do with the zeitgeist and the elements of the Holocaust that we're interested in talking about at any given time. And then some of them are personal. Many women did not tell their stories. They weren't believed or they were accused of having slept their way to safety or they felt tremendous survivor's guilt feeling that as as resistance fighters, they hadn't suffered enough or they hadn't suffered as much as some other survivors. So they felt they almost didn't merit telling their story. And for many of the women I write about, they were very young when the war was over. They were in their early 20s. They had their whole lives ahead of them. For many refugees, they, they needed to start fresh. They silenced their stories so that they could create new lives, and have and raise children in happy, normal environments. Your book, Light of Days, tells the story of a woman called Rainia Kukielka. Can you tell us a little bit about who she was and what she did? Renya is the central figure in my book, and she was 15 when Hitler invaded Poland. She was always defiant. She snuck out of the the Jewish ghettos where Jews were imprisoned um, in order to trade heirloom family objects for food. She escaped from the ghetto when she knew she was going to be killed. She fled through forests. She leapt off trains. And she found herself, when she was 18 years old, with the an underground, the Jewish underground in the town of Bijin. And they needed someone to go do missions to Warsaw to help arm their resistance cell, their underground cell. And she took on this task with with passion and, and with fury and with vigor. And so she became what was called a courier girl. She pretended to be uh, non-Jewish, a, a Catholic Pole. She slipped out of the ghetto and did missions, several missions back and forth between Beijing and Warsaw, smuggling information, false uh, Aryan papers, uh, as well as guns, ammunition, explosives, and even other Jews helping them to find safe hiding spots. We're just hearing some sirens in the background as we speak to you there in Manhattan, New York. Uh, Judy, why was it easier for these young Jewish women to blend in outside the ghettos than some of the Jewish men? That's a great question. It was easier for women to perform as Christians for several reasons. First of all, they were not circumcised. Men had a physical marker of their Jewishness on their body that, you know, they, people would, if someone suspected they were Jewish at gunpoint, they would tell them to drop their pants. So women didn't have that. They didn't have that as a fear or a threat. Women also in the 1930s, um, education was mandatory for boys and girls in Poland Jewish families often sent their sons to Jewish schools, but they sent their daughters to Polish public schools. And because of that, uh, these girls, who then went on to become the resistance operatives, learned Polish. They learned the Polish language like a Pole, they always say, without the creaky Yiddish accent they describe. 
they, they were more acculturated. They understood Catholic customs and mannerism and, and even prayers. So it was easier for them to pretend that they were Christian. Tell us about the tactics they used, putting bombs on German train lines, flirting with Nazis, buying them wine, bribing them, um, underground radio bulletins, all kinds of incredible tactics. What was this overall effort? What did it look like and how effective was it? So I write about Jewish women who were participating in organized resistance in the underground in in a whole span of ways, ranging from, you know, taking care of orphans, finding rescue places for orphans, for children, running secret schools, um, secret soup kitchens, to blowing up Nazi trains to being ghetto fighters and flinging Molotov cocktails and throwing explosives at Nazi tanks. Even women who were assassins who walked into a a Gestapo office and, and shot them in the head. In the start of your book, you set up this decision that young Jewish women would have been faced with at that time, whether to um, flee or to fight. And it's sort of almost heartbreaking to read that Despite their bravery and and that incredible decision to stay and fight, they were still overpowered by the Nazis. It's heartbreaking. And and many of them didn't have that decision. I mean, that's, that's almost a theoretical mind game that we can play, fight or flight. Many of them were not able to flee. Many of them were able to flee and came back. They smuggled themselves back into Nazi-occupied Europe because it was so important for them to be with their communities and to fight for their convictions. Obviously, they've picked up some pretty unique skills in being part of a resistance movement and also the bond they would have had. How do you think their time in that sort of movement impacted what they went on to do? It's interesting. Many of them went on to become social workers, refugee aid, nurses, uh, nursery teachers. They worked in caring professions. And I, I do think that that helping others and, and, you know, working out of empathy really actually helped them move on and helped them survive. Some of them were humanitarian activists. Um, one woman survived. She became a very unusual psycho, uh, psychologist, a child psychologist. She devised her own system based on intuition, which is what she used in the forests when she was a saboteur blowing up Nazi trains. So I think that their skills, as well as their compassion, did affect their lives. Here in Australia, we're having this kind of reckoning. It's a bit of a debate about the way women are valued in society. It's kind of come out of the Me Too movement, but a little bit later. What message do you think these sort of stories about, you know, women in terrible situations rising up and, and, you know, having such an impact and their value in society. What do you think we can take from that? Someone was just saying the other day, sisters are doing it for themselves. These women (laughs) took responsibility. They took action. They were not waiting for someone else to come save them. They took it upon themselves to save themselves in whatever way they could, but to to really fight for freedom and to fight for their convictions. And again, they took on 
I mean, against all odds, they took on Hitler's army when the biggest militaries in the world couldn't defeat Hitler's army. And that didn't matter. What mattered was that they kept fighting and that that fight, their small acts are meaningful. They're meaningful. They were meaningful to them and to those around them. And they're meaningful to us today. And your publisher is telling us that Steven Spielberg has optioned your book. So I I get the sense he's considering turning this into a movie. Have you spoken to him? I've not spoken to him directly, but uh, I'm working with his production company and I am helping to co-write the screenplay. Wow. So it's happening. Well, one one day at a time, one <laughs> step at a time. How exciting is that for you that that, that might eventuate? I mean, of course, it's tremendously exciting. <laughs> I, I mean, this is such an important story and it's so cinematic and it's so dramatic. I, I think it will play well on screen. That was Judy Battalion. Incredible story, hey, Annika? Yeah, it puts a lot of things in perspective, mm. doesn't it? The sort of tactics these women went to and at a time when women definitely weren't seen as a powerful force in society. Yeah, and I think the fact that these stories hadn't been told highlights that they they weren't valued enough in our cultural memory. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're taking you to Minneapolis where there's a lot going on right now. There's the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man who killed George Floyd, and also the latest wave of protests after the weekend shooting there. Listener.